Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we continue our two-part conversation with Karun Demersian and Rachel Bade about their new book, Unchecked, the untold story behind Congress's botched impeachments of Donald Trump. Rachel, Karun, welcome back to That Said. Thanks for having us back. Yeah. So this is part two of our interview, two of two. We left off our first interview on February 5th, 2020, with the acquittal of Donald Trump and the prediction by Susan Collins of Maine that Donald Trump learned a lesson. And we'll see what lesson it was that he learned. So January 6th happens. We're not going to go through the facts of January 6th. Everyone should know what happened on January 6th. January 6th happens, and you sort of pick up the narrative where the members of Congress are in hiding, and Congressman Cicilline, from his hideout, while this is sort of ongoing, is beginning to text and round up the musketeers. What's he saying to them? Well, he's looking at what's happening on the floor and saying, we have to impeach this guy. You have to remember, the musketeers never completely got over the fact that the first impeachment didn't fully work. They had believed since, you know, early on that Trump deserved the highest condemnations available in the Constitution. And they were questioning their own failures for why the whole thing had failed. You know, could they have done a better case? Could they have tried other things? And they never quite let go the idea of there is something here to get him on. And then January 6th happens and it shocks everybody, right? And it's, it's an instant realization pretty much for Cicilline that we have to do this. There, this is the moment. If there were anything, this is the worst thing that I can think of in terms of a president has done against the country. And there have got to be people now that will be willing to go for this. So he and Ted Lieu, who is in Cicilline's office because his house office building was evacuated because, as you remember, there were pipe bombs placed outside the DNC and RNC that day that didn't go off, but they evacuated one of the close-by buildings as a precaution. So he's holed up in Cicilline's office, and together they basically just start writing an article of impeachment or writing an impeachment resolution and with the intention of we are going to try to galvanize everybody now in the next couple of hours, not the next couple of weeks or months, to try to get this done because this is so egregious. Mm. And Rachel, we hinted at it in part one of our conversation, and Karun has just sort of teased it out again. But Raskin really wanted in the first impeachment to have it be a much broader look. He didn't like the simple abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. He thought that Trump was corrupt, running a corrupt organization for profit, and he wanted to really expand this, but Pelosi wouldn't let him. Was this sort of an opportunity to bring in that corruption that he wanted but was denied in part one? Yeah, I mean, Raskin, you know, if we go back to the first part of the book, he was always this sort of pesky progressive in Nancy Pelosi's ear telling her that they were doing the first impeachment all wrong. He sort of plays this character, but this sort of uh, low-profile character in the first part of the book, um, trying to be the moral conscious of the party. You know, he makes an argument to Pelosi in part one, as you mentioned, that they need to be 
doing more like they shouldn't be sidelining all these other investigations of Trump, whether it's about hush payments, Trump profiting off the Oval Office, running down subpoenas to make sure people come in and enforce them in court. He was one of the few Democrats that we came across who was actually very honest about the fact that their case was falling through the cracks and they weren't doing it right. You know, you didn't hear a lot of Democrats talk like that, but he did. He reflected like that. So this time comes around, and obviously we just talked about January 6th, his closest friends, David Cicilline, Ted Lieu, uh, writing this article of impeachment while they are hiding from the mob. They reach out to Jamie Raskin, who is, you know, a best friend of theirs. And it's the same dynamic we're seeing as we saw in the first impeachment, and that you have this band of progressives who are not thinking about political consequences or what this might be for the Biden administration they are wanting to hold Trump accountable. And so once again, you have this group of progressives pushing Pelosi, who doesn't want to go there again, because she's concerned that this will distract from, you know, the incoming Biden administration. Um, and they have to fight for that. Eventually they win, though. They are able to once again build enough pressure like they did in the first one to force Pelosi's hand in some way. And Raskin, Nancy Pelosi puts Raskin in charge. He had just lost his son to suicide a couple of days before January 6th. He had actually buried him, I believe, January 5th. And Pelosi was really concerned about Raskin and how he was doing at that point. And while she had ignored him for years in his suggestions about how to carry out oversight of Trump, she decides like she she almost a motherly instinct takes over for her and she decides she needs to give him something to keep him occupied in this really tough time. And she gives him the impeachment. And she says, you are the one who's going to try this before the Senate. And he vows from the first day that he's going to take a very different tact. He vows that he's going to do something very different than Adam Schiff did. He's going to try to get enough Senate Republicans to actually convict Donald Trump. He's not going to worry about the politics. He's going to lead where the facts, you know, go. This isn't about making Republicans look bad. It's just about trying to get those votes to bar him from office. Hmm. But so let's back up just for a second, because you've covered a lot of territory. Yes, sorry about that. <laughs> it's all good. I, yeah. but I want to be able to parse it a little bit more granularly. When they float the idea, so January 6th comes and goes, and now we're at 7th, 8th, 9th, and they've got these articles of impeachment or resolution being drafted uh, to incite an insurrection. And they present it to, to leadership. And I'd like to talk about sort of person by person in a sense. What was Schiff's reaction to doing this? So Schiff's reaction is interesting because it happens in two different ways, right? Schiff personally, as he ruminates about this, he, he's not like the first guy to jump off the block like the musketeers are about, you know, we need to impeach now. But he, after a few days, basically makes a state fairly soon, makes a statement about how he believes that this might rise to the level of being impeachable. But but because Pelosi, who is not comfortable with this, wants somebody to try to argue and tamp things down, she basically puts Schiff up to being the guy to be the naysayer because she thinks that people will listen to him, because she thinks that he can stress test the argument of the musketeers toward impeachment. Remember, on January 6th, when Cicilline takes this article, this impeachment resolution that he's written to the floor, he tries to get leadership to actually put it on the floor, and they refuse. He basically says, look, there's enough of a groundswell of people right now who are angry enough at Trump that if we vote on this now, 
we can get this done immediately. And he says that to Sonny Hoyer. Sonny Hoyer takes it to Nancy Pelosi. They balk. They, they give a whole bunch of procedural excuses of why they can't. Three days later, this is on January 9th, they are in a Saturday night uh, conference call meeting, basically, of like the influential players in the House Democratic circles trying to argue about whether or not we're supposed to go ahead with impeachment. And on Pelosi's request, Adam Schiff lists out the reasons that they shouldn't. And it becomes this whole thing where in the course of that meeting, the leaders realize that the tide of the Democratic Party is has completely left them. And Pelosi ends up turning on a dime because as Schiff starts to realize that the moment has passed to say no to impeachment, they have to go with it. He scrambles to try it again, the figure that he has been in the past and say, okay, well, I have some ideas about how we can do this. And Pelosi actually says, sorry, Adam, I don't think we need to recreate the wheel here and defers to the musketeers, which is a really subtle moment, but like it's representative of a very big shift because Pelosi and Schiff had always been uh, in lockstep operation. At that point, there's, you know, this break where she physically turns to the musketeers and puts the baton in their hands to run with for the rest of it. And from that point on, you know, I think Schiff and Raskin go to lunch to compare notes, but it's not Schiff's impeachment game anymore. It's a very different one. And it's the one that, you know, belongs to the people that were more of the purists, really, and the ones who are not good politicians. I take that back. I don't want to say not good politicians, but they're not the sort of like, they represent liberal districts. They have not had to play tough politics in their own life in terms of balancing, you know, moderates and swing votes and everything else like that. They are just very, very dead set on doing this as much by the book as they can of the constitution, bringing the full weight of the impeachment power to bear against Trump. And I'll just leave that with a butt because (laughs) things don't always turn out as, People can go in with the best of intentions for doing things, but politics is politics and it eventually takes over. Well, it's interesting that you say that because when I was reading the book and part of me is sort of rooting for Jamie Raskin and the Musketeers because they represent sort of the ideal. And then you have Pelosi representing politics is a very difficult sport and she's representing sort of reality on the ground. So as you said, she can say of them, well, look, you know, it's fine. They live in the a world of idealism. I live in a world of counting votes and maintaining congressional seats so that we are a majority party and we can forward our agenda. So it was a very interesting sort of study in practical politics versus idealism. And, and you see that throughout the course of this. But Rachel, tell me about Nadler, because he's a very interesting character when part two comes along compared to the positions he took in part one. Yeah, I mean, if you remember back to part one of the book, he was fighting uh, Adam Schiff, saying we've got to give the president due process. Uh, he very much wanted to have all the witnesses appear in the Judiciary Committee. He was very uh, adamant about protecting the turf of the House Judiciary Committee, which traditionally does, you know, the full impeachment. This time around, he's on the same page as the Musketeers and Jamie Raskin. He says, literally says in this meeting that Karin was just talking about, impeach him now, impeach Donald Trump now, the Senate can give him due process later. So this whole 
thing about this rule book about how impeachment had typically been done in the past uh, with hearings, investigations, months of public hearings, long reports, et cetera. He says, forget it. We were all witnesses to this crime and we know what Trump did to incite this this mob and this riot. Let's impeach him. And then the Senate can figure out what to do. So you actually see, you know, people like Nadler also start to have a shift. Pelosi herself is starting to have a shift in thinking right around this time about who she's going to trust to run the second impeachment. Nadler basically throws the rule book out the window. And, you know, we write in that chapter that that's another sign to Pelosi. If Nadler is willing to say, we don't need to have any investigation, we don't need to have any witnesses, we're just going to impeach him and send it to the Senate. If he's willing to say that, and he's been such a, you know, a bull for his own judiciary uh, turf, and he's willing to give that up, then I'm going to lose this war with the rest of the Democrats. And that's one of the reasons she sees the writing on the wall and says, we're going to have to do this again, even though she doesn't want to. So if the institutionalists are for impeach now, and she sort of historically has been an institutionalist, right. she, she says this ship has sailed and I better get on it if I'm going to try to captain it as well. Uh, one of the people I came across feeling less good about, I mean, you write about him, Karen, is Schumer. And, <laughs> um, can you talk a little about, uh, Raskin is, is furious with Schumer at one point, saying, I think, that he showed his left side of his face to New York and the right side of his face to Washington. So can you talk a little bit about Schumer in this early uh, Schumer, yeah, it, it's really interesting. He goes from initially being kind of all over the place to eventually basically almost becoming a, a foil within the party to what the Raskin and the Musketeers who become the impeachment managers are trying to do. Um, remember, the other thing that happened on January 6th is that Chuck Schumer became majority leader. Nobody really cared because we were dealing with a giant, giant crisis, but that was the day that the Georgia runoff was called and Chuck Schumer became the head of the Senate. And the thing that you normally do when your country is not reeling from an event like January 6th is that you use the first 100 days, if the president in the Oval Office is the same party as you, to try to get as much done for him as you possibly can before the next political wave and cycle take over. This means usually maybe one or two legislative priorities, but it primarily means get a whole bunch of people confirmed, get in all of the the people that are going to be running the major agencies, the major departments, all of the national security people, they usually try to confirm even on day one sometimes. And Schumer does not want his floor to be overrun by by a trial, basically, when he needs that floor time and he needs those days on the calendar to actually do things. It also, remember, as much as Schumer becomes, you know, the majority leader designate on January 6th, it takes a few more I think it takes over a week more before they're actually able to get everybody sworn in and actually have things get up and running and functioning. So really it is clashing head to head of what Schumer's like starting block is and also what would be the start of the trial. And so this sets off a a tizzy in the Democratic Party. He starts, it's, it's funny because he's one of the first people to talk about how, you know, we need to pursue Things like the 25th Amendment here as an option and and to potentially even go further than that as an option to get rid of the president. And then but then he turns around and within the machinations of the Senate, he's constantly saying things like, oh, we don't actually need to hear from any witnesses. This can be a really quick trial and get it over with. Oh, you know, we don't we don't we don't want to have to have anything belabored and dragged out. The presumption. Sorry to just 
kind of spiral. But the presumption is that Chuck Schumer is saying things like we have to go hard against the president. Yay, impeachment. Yay, 25th Amendment. Get rid of him because he's afraid of a primary challenger from the left coming up in his next election cycle. And yet Chuck Schumer, the manager of the Senate, is thinking in terms of what does Biden want? What can I do to help the Biden administration? And for that, it's actually no. Kill, make impeachment go away as fast as possible. Don't give them the chance to actually fight for every last Republican senator. And he dispatches his people, his staffers, other senators who just happen to show up here and there saying the exact same thing to basically try to squish out all of this idealism from the group of uh, impeachment managers, from the musketeers telling them that they can't run down certain subpoenas, telling them that they shouldn't take up more floor time, telling them that nobody wants to see this. And this happens from before the trial starts all the way through the trial to the very last day. He is constantly trying to be like, make it go away, make it go away, make it go away. Don't do a complete job here because you're going to ruin my Senate floor leadership time that I have to start off with a bang. Was he doing, Rachel, Biden's bidding here? Biden had an opportunity, it seems, and we'll talk about this again later on, had an opportunity to cooperate more fully with the impeachment managers as they sought testimony and documents and stuff. But the White House was not very forthcoming, was it? Yeah. I mean, if you looked at what they were saying publicly, they were saying very little about impeachment. I mean, notice you didn't hear uh, President-elect Biden at the time coming out and saying right after January 6th that Trump needs to get it, be impeached again. And that's because privately they were really concerned about it, sort of upending those first 100 days, like that Karn said, are very critical. So Schumer was, I think Schumer, he, we talk in the book about how he's very much a political animal. You know, some lawmakers, you think of more, them more as like policy minds. Some lawmakers are more like backslapping people. They're into the personalities. Schumer is a political animal. He's always thinking about the next election. And so, yes, in some senses, he, he was doing Biden's bidding because Biden made clear privately that he, he wanted this to go fast ASAP and get it over with to, to start their own work as Democrats. But Schumer is also thinking about what do I need to do to hold on to the majority? And what they needed to do was pass a whole bunch of Democratic bills and show the base that you put Democrats in power, that we're going to do something with it. So he's also thinking about the politics of all of this. Um, so it's a little bit of both. But I think when it came to believing the impeachment needed to be done ASAP, he was 100 percent on board with what Biden wanted at that point. So interesting. When you look at their careers, Biden and Schumer essentially have never held a job other than being a politician. They both started essentially in their 20s in elective politics, and they've never done anything but. And so their only instinct is political. I've talked about this in context of special counsel, and they appoint these special counsel And they say, well, this is a great special counsel because he's been a career or she's been a career prosecutor. And I think to myself all the time, that's not what you want. You don't want a career prosecutor. You want someone who has seen the criminal justice system from the defense side, too. So they have a broadened aperture. But these two, Biden and Schumer, were peas in a pod on priorities of the politics take precedence over the idealism of doing the right thing. So my little speech, the articles of impeachment are put on the floor and are passed on January the 13th. 
I remember correctly, they, uh, yep, all, the Democrats, correct. all the Democrats vote for it, joined by 10 Republicans and 197 Republicans uh, vote no. So we are, again, sort of starting the impeachment without any sort of bipartisan support. Remember, Pelosi tells us in the beginning, impeachments only work if there's bipartisan support. So here we are on day one, seven days after an insurrection, and you have 197 Republicans voting against this. So was it, you asked questions in the beginning, did Republicans really see nothing wrong with Trump's behavior? Was the outcome preordained as everyone thought? So how do you answer those two questions in response to this initial vote. Was there any room for changing minds or was it baked in from the outset? I would say that to start the clock on January 13th is not an accurate way of looking at it because you're right. The initial vote had 197 Republicans voted against it, only 10 voting in favor of impeaching the president. But remember that a whole week before that Democrats the musketeers, start, starting with Cicilline and Ted Lieu, had wanted to put that same impeachment article on the floor that night when Republicans were distraught about what had happened, when you did not have 197 Republicans saying, yes, let's vote to continue to challenge the election results, when you actually had a much smaller number continuing with that cause. Before any of those Republicans were able to take what turned into a very kind of strange next two weeks and go home to hear from their constituents and their diehard Trump supporting constituents that if they dared cross the president, even after something like January 6th, that there would be hell to pay. The thought was among the musketeers that if you just did not give Republicans time to think, and if you did not give everybody time to start calculating politically, then the vote would have been very, very much bigger. So I think the missed opportunity and look, the part two, the second impeachment is all about, you know, yes, the questions you asked were things cooked from the get go. Was it inevitability? But it's also about having been through this once before. Did anybody learn from what went wrong? You know, or were there just repeated missed opportunities here? And, you know, as much as we were talking about process and everything like that during the first impeachment, timing also matters, as we learned in various different ways. So, yeah, by the time you get to January 13th, that's not a very big mandate, 10 Republicans from the House. So it definitely narrows the potential opening for having a conviction in the Senate. But to start the clock then is to forget that there was, an again, a missed opportunity that came before where you might have actually had a much bigger Republican vote uh, in the House to impeach had it just happened not a week later. And, and just to speak to your your first question about, you know, did Republicans, well, our first question that we wrote in our, our prologue, did Republicans not see anything wrong with what Trump had done? I mean, we have reporting in the book about McCarthy and this sort of uh, crisis he was having, this sort of uh, feeling this tug of knowing what he should do and what was right but then also seeing his speakership dreams. He wanted to be speaker someday, knowing that he couldn't turn on Donald Trump because then he would anger the base and he would never be speaker. But we have like a number of examples. Basically, after the 2020 election, when Donald Trump starts spouting the big lie, McCarthy doesn't buy it. 
He tries not to sign on to, you know, a court filing that Trump was putting pressure on him to back uh, to basically throw out the results of critical swing states that went for Biden. He tried not to do it. And then he ended up doing it because he, he caved to Trump. We have a scene where he's in his office right after January 6th. And he's talking about saying we're not going to refute and object to the Electoral Count Act uh, or the Electoral Count that was going on on the floor. And he again caves. So we show all these examples of where McCarthy knows what is right and he knows what he should do, but he just can't bring himself to do it. And so that's part of this dynamic right now where Republicans are really torn between doing what they believe they should be doing or, or what they know they should be doing and being afraid of Trump still, even in this moment. So maybe Karun's point is right that the moment had come on January 7th, maybe. And after that, people start calculating, how is this going to affect me personally, which is another, you could have written unchecked, how is this going to affect me personally? (laughs) Because every calculation, it seems, by leadership and otherwise is, how is this going to affect my majority if I'm a leader? Or how is this going to affect me personally in my district? And the hell with principle. It's just all about electing me again. It's really a very sad read in sort of profiles and courage. It's sort of a career well, politics, man. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a question though, and then we'll turn to Raskin assembling his team. It struck me in some measure that the reason for a second impeachment among the idealists was this was really bad, and we have to disqualify this guy from running for office again, because his tenure in office was going to end in in 10 days. So in some sense, there was a, a group of people, I think, that were saying, just let it be. He's gone in 10 days, and, you know, why would we want to do this? But there was this, well, we've got to disqualify him. Only by impeaching him do we get to disqualify him. And I wondered what your thinking was. Is that is that really the basis for a sound impeachment? Or does that, to your, one of the points that you make toward the end, does that just politicize the impeachment process and thereby weaken it as the powerful tool that it was intended by the, the framers of the Constitution? I would just say, you know, the framers, when they were, arguing and debating about whether or not to put impeachment in. One of the reasons they did put it in the Constitution was specifically to protect the nation from a tyrant. And, you know, I think when you look at history and all the times people have talked about using impeachment against the president, you could make the argument that in this moment, more than any other moment we had seen in American history, you came close to seeing someone who was turning into that, right? I mean, this is a guy who ignored the election results, put pressure on states to, you know, find votes to change election results. I mean, what Donald Trump had done in that in that moment, in those weeks after the election, arguably comes closest to what we've ever seen in terms of the actual reason why the framers put impeachment in the Constitution. And so I think for a lot of Democrats, especially Jamie Raskin and his bunch, there was a real fear that this guy you know, this is Teflon Trump. He has survived so many scandals and he just keeps coming back. He keeps coming back. 
And I do think that there was a, a genuine fear amongst Democrats and, and actually some Republicans that, you know, he could he could come back someday and be president again. And if he shattered all these norms, what is he going to do when he's in power next time? And so I do think that that was a motivation for a lot of them. But then you had people like Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden and other sort of more political minded Democrats who thought you're never going to get Republicans. So it doesn't matter what this guy does. You're not going to ever get enough Republicans to convict him and then move to ban him from office. So, you know, because of that sort of, uh, you know, pessimism, they want this all to be done with quickly. So there's definitely a divide in, in how people view this impeachment and what is possible in this moment. So, but Karen, also, Michael, you're this, kind of- can I just, I want to ask you one follow-up to that is if, as my mother would say, God forbid, Trump had a second term, and this was taking place at the end of his second term. Would there have been the same imperative to impeach? Because like in the case of Nixon, there's no running for office again. So is it really driven by the fact that he's still a viable presidential candidate that drives this? Meaning if he were not able to run again, would they have let it be more willing to let it go? It's a good question. Um, it's, I mean, look, what I was going to say before you made that point was that the, the question that you were positing is kind of like a rephrasing conceptually of the whole January exception debate, because obviously if it happens close enough to the end of the presidency, the question isn't so much, can you kick him out of office? Cause he's going to go before you can cast the vote versus, you know, can you bar him from running again? I feel like for the band of, um, people that were pushing the impeachment resolution on January 6th. This was about at least, even if it wasn't going to get through the Senate, putting an asterisk on Donald Trump again for being impeached over something this egregious. I think for there was a, a healthy number of Democrats for whom it was the principle of the thing. You can't get away with inciting a riot against the Capitol and have nothing happen at all. So, you know, even if the Senate's going to drop the ball, we have to still do something. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. That definitely, that the fact that there was the looming the looming potential for Trump to rise again as a candidate definitely made, gave people more incentive to run at this as hard as they did and to, to push for it as insistently as they did. Mm-hmm. It, but there's, but even if you take away like, you know, the procedural, can he run again stuff? There is still something to the idea of like, just even if Trump never wanted to run for office again, which obviously he is, but let's let's pretend that, you know, after 2020 and after January 6th, he just decided I'm done with this. He's still a very powerful political voice out there. Right. And so I think that there are a, a healthy band of Democrats that wanted to make sure that they qualified that what he had done in this circumstance was bad enough to actually warrant a very fast impeachment. Mm. So let's move forward with Raskin assembling his team. And you said, Rachel, I think that what Raskin wanted to make sure of was that he did not repeat what he thought to be the errors of the the first impeachment. He wanted no you know, sort of lecturing and no pontificating. He wants a team that is going to be based on law and facts in an effort to get 67 votes in the Senate. So how does he go about endeavoring to put together a fact-based, non-preachy sort of team? Yeah, so Raskin, one of the key things that he did 
and that actually created a little bit of a debate within his impeachment team at the time. He wanted to make sure Republicans never felt like they were a cause at all in what happened in January 6th. And obviously there were some Democrats who did blame a lot of Republicans and say, you know, if they hadn't bought and sort of touted Trump's big lie, January 6th might not have happened. But Raskin wanted the team to sort of frame this as that the riot that happened in the Capitol, that they were victims of it as well, like the Republicans were. And so by appealing to them as potential victims, not as people who helped Trump incite the riot, he thought he would have a better chance of sort of reaching them. He also, you mentioned like not lecturing. He specifically got a lot of uh, feedback from Senate Republicans and Republicans on the outside to not do anything like Adam Schiff did. I mean, obviously, we've talked about how Adam Schiff was a big boogeyman for Republicans. He had no credibility with them. This is a guy who's even more progressive than Adam Schiff, and yet he knew he needed to take a very different tone when it came to these Republicans to try to convince them. We talked about Susan Collins and this notion of her saying after the first impeachment that Donald Trump, quote, learned a lesson. I think at one point, one of his impeachment lawyers put that in one of the arguments that they were going to be giving on the floor. And Raskin personally scratched it out and was like, we're not going to do that. We're not going to alienate these guys or make them look bad because then we turn them off to potentially voting to convict Trump. He also wanted to have Republican members as as part of his team. We write in the book about how he had a personal friendship with Liz Cheney, who had voted to uh, impeach Trump in the House. He had relationships with those 10 Republicans who took that vote, and he started to think about and potentially float this idea of having Republican managers on his team to try to present the case to Republican senators. He ends up sort of chickening out on that because they were getting a lot of death threats, actually, from Republican voters at the time. Some of them had even started wearing bulletproof vests to work, and he was afraid of putting them in a worse political and potentially dangerous position than they were at the time. So he ends up not asking them. And it actually becomes one of his big regrets about this trial. And then the last thing he wanted to do differently was he wanted to have witnesses in a trial. He believed that if he could get a Republican who was with Trump on January 6th or knew something about what was happening with Trump to sit on the stand and tell Senate Republicans about what they knew, he could actually win over a lot of Republican vote. You have to sort of keep in mind what we knew at the time that this, the second impeachment was going on. We actually didn't know a lot about what was going on in the White House. We do now, you know, years later, but at the time it was all sort of speculation. What was Trump doing? What was he not doing? Was he telling people to stand down? Was he ignoring pleas to, to send in the national guard? What was he doing? We didn't know. And so Raskin wanted to have a Republican tell that story about Trump and what he did that day. And that was another way he was hoping to sort of distinguish his team. Let's just hold the discussion on witnesses for a minute, because I really want to flesh that out, because it's a key point in the case. You ask again in the introduction of your book, why did the Democrats pull certain punches? And this is sort of a pulled punch in both impeachment. But to the point that you just make, Karen, I thought that you wrote that Liz Cheney was never directly asked whether she would have served as an impeachment manager. And after the trial is over, Raskin learns from her that she would have, you know, sort of like 
I, of course I would go to the prom with you, but you never asked. <laughs> I'm so glad you phrased it that way. Michael. I love That's that. my favorite part of this book is all the, the, I mean, sorry, I, I know we're biased because we wrote it, but like, but all of just like the little person to person moments that just tell you something about how like all of these massively, hugely important fate of the Republic questions come down to personality quirks sometimes. Yeah. Of the people who were involved. And like, it's just so, yeah, that was one of the things where, I mean, if you've watched Jamie Raskin and granted, Jamie Raskin is now like a household name across the country. He's much more familiar with being, you know, the, the face of the party on the big political circuit. But like Jamie Raskin was this person who was, he was, we talk about at the beginning of the book that like he kind of walks with a spring in his step. You know, he's super friendly, but he also can get really nerdy down rabbit holes. And like, there's a little bit of, you know, he's not your your average glad-handing politician, right? He has little inhibitions here and there. He's got a little bit of awkwardness sometimes. He didn't want to put Liz Cheney in a bad spot because he already knew that she was under so much pressure from the top of her party. She's in party leadership. Remember that. Like, she's the number three in the, the House Republican Party. And he knows that she's getting crap from every direction and that she's getting death threats. And he's like, I don't want to make things worse. And so in his head, he thinks he's asking her to prom, but he never actually says it. He just hints and hopes that she'll kind of fill in the words. And it's so sad, but so cute, but so terrible. And it's like kind of, I don't know. I think that's, that's what we try to do in various junctures because it really does sometimes depend not on the principle, not on the moment, not on the timing, not on the numbers, not on the anything, but the person. And like, that's the times when it's the most heartbreaking, but also the most understandable why certain things happen and didn't happen. And, and that's classic Jamie Raskin, but you could totally picture that sort of a situation happening with him. Right. And him being like, well, I thought I did afterwards. Oh my God, darn it. And remember he was under pressure from his own party too, as Rachel was pointing out. Pelosi did not want Republicans on this committee. So he was kind of sneaking around as well for even starting this committee. Pelosi did not want Republicans on her impeachment manager's roster. So he was kind of sneaking around from both sides and he did a little too sneakily for it to be clear what he was doing. Yeah, it's funny because it's so interesting when you look at the personalities because one of the wonderful parts of the book was just to get to know these people, uh, Schiff and Raskin and Pelosi, sort of up close and personal. And you see this corduroy pants wearing constitutional law teacher. He wears suit pants, but yes. (laughs) In Jamie Raskin. And then you have this former prosecutor in Adam Schiff who did well as a prosecutor. I knew him when he was an AUSA assistant United States attorney in the Central District of California. We were both in justice at the same time, and he has a very good trial reputation. He misreads the jury, if you will, in his trial. And uh, Jamie Raskin, who I don't know has ever really been a trial lawyer, has a very clearer sense of what his jury needs to hear in order to convict. And so it's very interesting to see how they each performed given the roles that they were assigned. Yeah. So the trial starts. Raskin doesn't have a bipartisan group of of managers. He has principally, what he says to Pelosi is, I will do this as long as I get to pick my team. And he picks the musketeers and Eric Swarwell. I don't know if he was really a fifth musketeer, but, but he certainly uh, falls in line with the 
Musketeers. And he says, I'll do it, but I get to pick my team. And Pelosi says, okay, you can pick your team. And it begins. But one thing that you talked about, which I want to sort of flesh out a little bit, you said, Rachel, that Pelosi sort of takes a motherly instinct to Raskin. I don't want to talk long about it, but can you talk about Tommy and what happened and how it informs Raskin's behavior over the course of the trial? Because it's important to understand Jamie Raskin's psychology um, as as he's going to this most important moment in his political life. Yeah. So losing Tommy was obviously very tough on him. Tommy was Jamie Raskin's son, who was named after, of course, uh, Thomas Paine in a very Jamie Raskin type way. He was very close with his son. He was a humanitarian. He was in college. Law school, actually. Law school, yes. Uh, following in the footsteps of his dad. And he had been struggling with depression for a long time. And so I believe it was on New Year's Eve, his son had gone to bed. Jamie Raskin was home with his son. I believe his wife and his daughters were not there. And he came downstairs and and found his son, who had left a note telling him to take care of the animals, take care of, you know, the poor, take care of the world, uh, but I can't do it anymore. And Raskin had taken that note and put it on his dresser as he was preparing for his speech on January 6th, defending the election. And when Pelosi turns to him, he's in this obvious state of shock and grief. But he ends up channeling all of that into this trial to the point that even other impeachment staffers and other impeachment managers were actually starting to get concerned about it. They believe that he was sort of dedicating this entire case against Trump to Tommy and that if he was not successful in getting a conviction, of Trump that it would actually really crush him because he, he believed he was going to do this. He was going to do this for Tommy. He was going to do this for his country. And he just very much channeled all that. He also wasn't grieving a lot because he was so busy. Like he was not taking time. The managers, his fellow managers were worried about, he wasn't taking time to like sort of let that sit in almost using as a way of like avoiding sort of, wallowing in that grief or taking a moment to to sort of digest what happened. And so people were worried about him on that team, uh, but it also gave him sort of this, I'm going to do this mentality. I'm doing this for my son as well as my country. And people were also very much in awe of him. I mean, we talked to one person on the team who basically likened him to a a Superman or like a, somebody who had a superpower to be able to juggle all these things in a point of his life that was obviously one of the most difficult, it probably the most difficult time he had ever gone through uh, as a person. I'm adjuncting at American University, Washington College of Law, as we speak. And whenever I walk around and talk to one of the deans or senior faculty, and I mention Jamie Raskin, it's like, oh, my what a wonderful human being this guy is. And you saw in the trial, in a sense, that sort of humanity come out, whereas Adam Schiff, the prosecutor, was sort of much more challenging. You must do this. Jamie Raskin is, we're on this journey together. And I think it set a very different tone. The outcome didn't change, 
but the tone of the trial was vastly different. And I think it had potential. It had potential, but it didn't succeed. And one of the reasons it didn't succeed is the way in which McConnell sort of structured the trial, the way he whipped his people in the first trial he whipped people on process, no due process, no witnesses, no rights to the minority. In the second trial, they talk about the constitutionality of trying a former president. And one of the ways they whip that vote is on whether it's constitutional to try a former president. So can we talk a little bit about how the trial opens with this debate about the constitutionality and how it was then used as the sort of excuse for the vote in the end? Yeah, I mean, the difference between McConnell in the first impeachment and the second impeachment, as you point out, is that he's all leadership and structure in the first, and he's all kind of not in the second at all. The constitutionality argument that ends up taking over the GOP starts as something that is an op-ed written by Robert Ludig, whose last name I'm probably mispronouncing. It's Ludig. I think that's right. Yeah, I think yeah. Um, that basically, you know, just whether you can try a try and impeach former president, at which point, you know, it's, it's written about a week before Trump actually has his last day in office, but it becomes a very salient question when they're actually in the course of the trial. And... McConnell thinks that it's a complete BS argument that you can't actually convict a former president. And he, he talks about it with his staffers. He tries to, to sort through it and get to any sort of anything, but he basically thinks of it as quote, an off ramp. And yet it's an off ramp that he ends up basically letting his party pull him into taking. They're discussing this. McConnell decides he's going to have prominent uh, GOP attorneys come to talk to all of his people during lunch to present arguments for one side, to present arguments for the other. Yes, it's constitutional. No, it's not. And that he's going to this way kind of slowly bring his people along to realize that it's actually okay to do this. Because McConnell, remember, is actually truly revulsed by what Trump did on January 6th at this point. His staffers, his people that have been with him for their entire professional lives were, you know, basically having to physically run and barricade themselves in offices. I mean, he was in lockdown. It it hit him very, very hard. But at the end of January, he basically gets blindsided. Uh, Rand Paul decides he is going to force the issue of having a vote before the trial starts on the constitutionality of the trial at all. And so They take this vote because basically the way it's brought up, it has privilege. It can just go straight to the floor. And how many Republicans is it at that point? All but five or six. All all but at that point, I think it's five. All but five Republicans vote to say that it's not constitutional to have the trial for a former president. And then they're stuck. And and that then becomes what they have to stick to. And so McConnell then proceeds from that point out, not really whipping anybody, but eventually voting and espousing the theory of, oh, it's not constitutional, even though we know from the reporting that he didn't believe that. He actually thought that it was an off-ramp and an excuse of an argument. And his party members, because remember, again, 
for 17 Republican senators at that point to have actually voted against Trump would have taken a very, very big act of bravery. Seven of them did. But to find 10 more, and there are other Republicans in that group that could have been, you know, of those 10, they needed some cover because they needed to make sure that this vote wasn't going to basically end their careers. The only person that could have provided them that cover was Mitch McConnell had he voted his conscience and what he thought was right or wrong, not what he thought was an actual excuse and an off-ramp, which is what he ended up doing. And so it's the lack of whipping, the lack of leading, the lack of saying where he was that defines him during the second impeachment and ends up due to his lack of speech dictating where the party ends up going. And keep in mind, too, that as we show in the book, McConnell actually, right after January 6th, thought there would be enough Senate Republicans to vote to convict Trump and then bar him from office. He was intrigued by the idea of impeachment, specifically talked about it with his staff because he wanted to bar Trump from office. And we show in the book how he has this debate with his top legal mind, Andrew Ferguson, uh, who is now Solicitor General uh, in Virginia, I believe, about whether or not if they convict Trump, could they bar him from office? And uh, Ferguson pulls out this very obscure legal argument and convinces McConnell that just because Trump gets convicted and just because they vote to, to bar him from office doesn't mean that he actually will never be able to run. He made this case that Trump will appeal this through the courts and he might actually be successful and he could use the vote to convict him as a way to, to make himself a martyr and come back even stronger. And so McConnell goes from thinking they can do this and they, you know, that he might actually do this to starting to feel pressure from fellow Republicans who don't want to, but also being convinced by his own legal team that even if they take this plunge to convict Trump and bar him from office, that he actually might come back and use that to sort of launch his career again. So McConnell very conflicted at this point, but point being, as Karin just said, a huge and complete shift from where he was in the first impeachment, where it was all about protecting his majority, protecting uh, Trump, to wanting Trump gone and thinking about, okay, what is the best way to get there? The thing that struck me as so disappointing about McConnell was, as you say in the book, he believed that this was an impeachable offense. He believed that Trump was a drag on the Republican Party. He believed that there was no January exception, meaning that you could, as long as you filed the articles of impeachment during the tenure of the president, when you held the trial was beside the point. And they did file during the presidency of Trump and the post-presidential trial, impeachment trial, was constitutional. And there was legal precedent for that. McConnell knew all of that. And yet he decides that he is going to be a poster child for in cowardice and refuses to take the vote that it was constitutional. Carl Bernstein tells a story in one of the podcasts we did with him where Nixon has called Goldwater and his top Republican team to the White House. And he says to Goldwater, how many votes do I have if I fight this? How many votes do I have against impeaching me? And Goldwater says to him, Mr. President, you have a few, but you will not have mine. 
and Nixon retires the next day. Because when Goldwater says, you will not have mine, he knew it was over. McConnell had that same moment to say, you will not have mine. And he balked. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't talking to Trump at that point, so not quite the same conversation. But effectively, yeah, you're right. That was his chance to take a similar stand and to actively turn his party on a new course. And he got scared and found a way to talk himself into thinking and and promoting something antithetical to what he actually uh, believed was was right. In one of the most sort of tragic moments, I think, of part four, we really show in detail how that the move by Senator Rand Paul, a fellow Kentuckian who forced this early vote on the constitutionality question, put McConnell in a corner to make that decision before he was ready to. I mean, Karin laid out about how he had sort of this plan where he was hoping to bring in Republican legal minds, like ones that are very well respected, someone like a Chuck Cooper who totally disagreed with this idea, by the way, prominent Republican lawyer who's very well respected with senators, and say, look, this is constitutional. I know what you read by Ludwig, but this is constitutional. McConnell wanted them to hear from these people, and then, like, all of them jump together and potentially, you know, say this is this is a constitutional trial, therefore setting them on a path to potentially convict Trump. Um, but Rand Paul gives them like no notice that he's going to force this issue before it really was supposed to come to a head. And McConnell had not had time to lay out those chess pieces. And because of that, you know, he goes into his office after this meeting, his own staff didn't even know how he was going to vote in this critical vote. And there's a bunch of Senate Republicans. We report on the floor talking to his aides being like, how is this guy? How is he going to vote? We need to know. Is he going to give us cover? How is he going to vote? And he ends up chickening out at that moment. But you have to wonder what would have happened if Rand Paul wouldn't have forced the issue at that moment, if he had actually had time to do what he wanted to, to build this case. And granted, clearly it was lack of courage. I don't think, you know, Karin and I are disagreeing on that at all. But you have to wonder, like, would he have taken a different path if he had actually had the time to build that argument with his own conference to bring along more Republicans and make himself feel secure to do that, to take that risk? So McConnell has got this elaborate multi peace chess game in his head, and he's going to bring in these constitutional scholars to talk about constitutionality and unconstitutionality. But because of the timing of Rand Paul's vote, the Republican senators only got to hear from one person, and that was Jonathan Turley from George Washington University, who said it was unconstitutional to bring a case against the former president, a minority position, but they never got to hear the other side, and then they have to go in to this vote. And so the whole chess game ends in a sort of early checkmate. One just caveat to that, they never got to hear the other side from one of their own. You know, Democrats were talking about this nonstop, but it was all about the messenger. And that goes for, you know, is it prominent GOP attorney? Is it McConnell saying these things? Also witnesses, you know, as much as during the second trial, there was this attitude of like, well, they were all witnesses to it. So why do we have to have witnesses? It's sometimes different when you hear something coming from one of your own. If Mike Pence or his chief of staff had actually sat on the stand in front of the Senate or done a pre-recorded thing that was broadcast in the Senate, whatever, and told their story, there is power in that. 
that there is not when it comes from other voices or just is never actually even articulated. So let's talk about witnesses uh, because it's it's critical. Raskin knows that the first impeachment trial fails in no small measure because of the lack of firsthand witness to the Ukraine call. And they had the possibility of subpoenaing Bolton, who had that firsthand knowledge, and they passed on it, and the results were as they were. They lost the trial. So here we are again. Raskin's aware of that loss. He knows he needs a witness because he's hearing it, that you have no witnesses to what Trump knew and what Trump was doing. They have witnesses to the insurrection, and that's an easier trial against the insurrectionists. But if you're going to go after the leader of the insurrection who isn't there, you need to put knowledge and intent in that leader's actions. And so they're in a trial position where they don't have that. But opportunities present themselves, but they're not taken. So let's talk about the efforts by Chuck Cooper to get Pence or Mark Short Pence chief of staff. But most importantly, let's talk about Jamie Herrera Butler and what she presented as an opportunity and how that opportunity didn't materialize. My favorite yeah. chapter of the whole book. Go ahead. Okay, you go for it. Rachel. No, you go for it. Please, please. So Jamie Herrera Butler had, in fact, spoken publicly about what ended up becoming the 11th hour twist in the trial. Oh. And I'm sorry, let me just interrupt to say Jamie Herrera Butler was at the time a Republican congresswoman from Washington state. She's right. no longer in Congress. She lost. She uh, lost to a challenger, primary challenger who was to her right. Yes. She exactly. was also That's... one of the 10 Republicans who had voted to impeach the president on the House floor. Right, sorry, sorry. If you recall from our last conversation, she was one of, or I'm not sure if we mentioned in our last conversation, but even during the first impeachment, she was one of the people that during the investigative phase actually stood up to her party leaders in the GOP and said, why shouldn't I vote for this? And they basically formed much of that due process pressure campaign with people like Jamie Herrera Butler in mind to convince them to stick with the pack. So she reappears towards the end of the trial because there is a CNN article that quotes her and is talking about how McCarthy and Trump had a call on uh, January 6th in which McCarthy is trying to get Trump to do something about it. And Trump basically says, well, I guess these people care about me a whole lot more than you do, Kevin, and they get into a big fight. The contents of this call become public knowledge on the what ends up being the penultimate day of the trial, but it's a Friday. And it causes this stir. Jamie Herrera Butler knows about this call between McCarthy and Trump because she asked McCarthy about it directly. She went to McCarthy to say, look for guidance, basically, on how to vote. She is an independently minded person, but she's also like a careful person and tends to check all the different options of doing something before she actually takes an action. She and McCarthy had gone back a long way. And so she had 
uh, trusted his counsel in the past. And basically he uses her approaching him for advice as a, a chance to let this off his chest, basically. And he tells her about this phone call that happened with Trump. He had told other moderates and other forums about it as well. But Jamie Mara Butler ends up being the, the way that it gets to, to the public. Frankly, she had actually been talking about it in her home district before that. And so it wasn't like radical news, but it was new national news, which just tells you sometimes there's so much going on in the news cycle that we miss little things that are important along the way. And the, um, but the importance of it, just to put an uh, underline of it, is the importance of it is when Trump says to McCarthy, I guess they, the insurrectionists, care more about election integrity in my me, career yeah. than you do. It's believed to be evidence of his state of mind that is what is the missing link between the insurrectionists and Trump as organizer, instigator of it, correct? Correct. And it's a way of basically maybe making, putting a hole in the dam, right? Like, because there, as much as there have been discussions going on, they have interlocutors who are in GOP circles trying to help them with the Pence team and everything else. The impeachment managers nearing the end of that first week of the trial do not have a ready Republican witness to take the stand. And then this comes out and Jamie Herrera Butler is willing to be on the record about this in the CNN article. Right. And so all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, maybe the dam can break. Maybe if we get this Jamie Herrera Butler person who they're not actually that familiar with because Congress is a big place and sometimes people don't know each other that well. Well, if we can get her to take the stand, that would put pressure on McCarthy to talk about what happened with Trump. That could put pressure on Pence. And so it starts this all hands on deck rush to see, can we actually secure witnesses this time? There's phone tag happening across coasts. The managers are obviously in Washington, D.C. Jamie Herr Butler is actually in California that weekend because it's a long weekend. It's actually going to be Valentine's Day weekend as well. And she's with her family three hours behind. And there's telephone calls and messages being left all over the place and nobody's connecting. And this becomes the moment in which there's like a flash of idealism about can we actually do what we always said we wanted to do, which is have a complete trial, have the witnesses come, have GOP people testify against Trump and be able to put that first person account of his mindset, of his motivation to actually convict him, to get all the senators we need to convict. But as we talked about a little bit ago, they're not operating in a vacuum. There is a pressure campaign coming from Schumer's team to to just stop, to, to not run at things. People like Chris Coons, who is a moderate centrist Democrat. He's also, I think he sits in what used to be Biden's Senate seat, and he's very close with the president, keeps poking his head into the manager's room, being like, wrap this up. You're not going to get any more votes. Everybody wants to go home for Valentine's Day. What do you think that we're doing? Like, you know, you're losing people by the hour. If you thought, if you want to even have any Republicans at all, you better hurry up and get this done. And it creates this these clashes within the Democratic Party between the House managers and the Senate Democrats who are trying to pressure them to not call any witnesses at all because it might take too much time. And meanwhile, Trump's lawyers are on the floor saying, if you call a single witness, we'll call 100 or 200 or 1,000 of them, including Nancy Pelosi. And it starts to get politically a bit crazy. And in the chaos of all of that, they have to walk out onto the floor and decide what to do. Jamie Raskin does get an initial vote on Saturday morning from the Senate to call witnesses, but it's not a specific witness. And before he actually goes back out onto the floor to say the next thing that's going to come out of his mouth, his team kind of gives up hope. And they fold their cards on even trying to reach Jamie Herrera Butler. I think they started calling at 9 p.m. the night before. 
without actually having a single witness in hand. And this ends up being another one of those, oh, but for personalities moment, because, you know, Jamie Herrera Butler, like I said, the get go, I'm sorry that I wasn't saying this in as linear as way as might've been helpful, but she's on the West coast. They're on the East coast. She doesn't actually even pick up the message from people until this is already starting to happen. She wakes up to the news that Raskin has called for witnesses and gotten a vote for it on the Senate floor. She's scrambling on a Saturday morning of a long weekend to try to find a lawyer to talk to, to decide what she should do. And two hours later, it's over. The thing, did you want to add something, Rachel, or should I talk? Yeah, I was just going to say the significance, too, of hearing from someone Again, just keeping in mind, like, how little we knew about what Trump was doing in the White House at that moment and how angry Senate Republicans were. Testimony like that could have been very effective. I mean, Trump's lawyers at the time were arguing in this trial that Trump was trying to stop the riot at the White House. I mean, it turns out that was totally false. Uh, and, you know, we would we would come to know even more details of about how wrong that assertion was uh, just days after he was acquitted for the second time. But I mean, this is, you know, somebody, a Republican who could speak firsthand to the fact that Trump knew what was going on. He knew about the violence and he was basically ignoring pleas from his top allies like Kevin McCarthy to do something. And he was cheering them, these rioters. And we should also say that in addition to Jamie Herrera Butler, when they were trying to get her to come forward, they were also trying to to get in touch with Mike Pence's team. Mike Pence obviously was hiding in a parking garage on the campus of the Capitol on January 6th. His team was furious at Trump and had sort of been putting out these feelers through intermediaries that they might actually testify and so, you know, you have to wonder what would have happened if they had actually issued a subpoena. And we also have to remember that Raskin in this in this time, he was trying to reach Republicans. He was trying to find a Republican to come forward, even though he didn't have a Republican willing to do that in that moment. He could have used a subpoena. I mean, Democrats had always talked about how during an impeachment trial, they believed that it would move very quickly through the courts and that the Supreme Court would rule very quickly on whether someone needed to follow and testify because of a subpoena and an impeachment trial, because of how important uh, and sort of the, the immediacy of needing a ruling that they would move very quickly. And so Raskin's own lawyers were debating in that moment, like, should they try to do a subpoena? Should they try to go to the courts and get people like Jamie Herrera Butler and Pence's own staff in? And they end up caving uh, again and never testing this own this argument that they had had, Democrats had, had for a long time and used in the first impeachment trial you know, to try to get Republicans to subpoena John Bolton. The she was on the other foot. They have the power to do it and they just were too afraid to do it and end up caving because of this pressure campaign from fellow Democrats. The thing that is prom like again in the uh, Jamie Herrera Butler case is yes, she's on the West Coast and yes, her phone message box is full and she's not getting but in the end she it seemed to your reporting was willing to testify and sent a, a message through, but that message never got to Jamie Raskin. And again, so like I would go to the problem with you, if you only asked, she is saying this time in a sense, call me or I could, but that 
call doesn't get heard by Raskin. Could you talk us through a little bit about it? And then also add, you mentioned uh, Delaware Senator Coons saying, we want to go home, you know, let us go home. He offers a deal about uh, Herrera Butler and an affidavit, and Raskin takes it rather than go the subpoena route. Remembering, of course, that in Nixon, it took the court only two months to decide that the tapes had to be turned over. So in a sense, what's the harm in waiting two months for a ruling on witnesses that could make a trial, which could disqualify Trump from running, which was the whole reason in the first place to undertake this impeachment. So can you talk to both of those points? And then I think we'll have to talk about lessons learned. Um, Rachel, should I take the first, you take the second? Sure. Okay. So the first point um, that you made just about the missed opportunities, missed moments, this one is in many ways far more tragic than the Liz Cheney, Jamie Raskin missed opportunity of asking to the prom. Jamie Ray Butler calls Doug Letter, who is the House counsel that's been appointed by Nancy Pelosi, basically asking for her advice on what she should do if she wants to come forward and testify. He says, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I'm not like in that. It's, it's be a conflict of interest for me to help you. And he never passes on the message. That is, you know, that's basically just like, it, 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 that, that's the part that makes it the most mind-boggling. Because that's not actually just, you know, a one person could have made the argument. That's the first witnesses that would have potentially caused the domino effect of all the witnesses to, to come following after, following after. And it's literally a passing on a message sort of a thing. And um, he's... he's- Counsel to the House of Representatives, which is so why he is he says, supposed to be available to the House of Representatives. Yes, exactly. But he says, well, because, of the House of Representatives. Said, because I'm counsel to the House of Representatives, I can't sort of help you because this is a sort of a, a case and ongoing it, case. Look, I, it's hard to wrap your brain about it. The House was bringing the impeachment case against the president in the Senate. Like the House was the prosecutor. And she basically directly called the prosecutor asking for legal advice. And so if he's thinking in a courtroom setting, maybe he's like, I can't advise you because I'm the prosecutor here. You know, so like find your I'm advising the prosecutor. Yeah. Right, but, exactly. but then never, you know, you would think he would have you passed think that message like, to hey, Raskin. Jamie. Yeah, exactly. Jamie Just Raskin. guess. Yes, YI. Okay, yeah. Jamie, he's on the phone saying she's thinking about it. Like but yeah. that never happened happens not even in, and, and like and the reason that it's so difficult to wrap your head around is like okay yes it's a saturday yes it's a long weekend but they were all hot boxing together right off the senate floor non-stop day and night like it's real easy to just kind of a casual aside oh by the way as all of this is flowing and literally witnesses are the only thing they're talking about all overnight into the next morning trying to figure out what to do so that's yeah extra tragic for that one yeah and then on your oh, oh oh I forgot to tell you <laughs> oh I forgot to tell you Jamie after the fact <laughs> yeah, yeah right. Herb Butler your you know your key witness called but I forgot to tell you you know <laughs> yeah and then I would My just make, yeah no kidding um I would just add on your second point about how you know during Nixon's time the Supreme Court moved very quickly to address questions about a subpoena two months there was a theory by Democrats and even some Republicans that it would move even quicker than that I mean. There was a Congressional Research Service sort of analysis about how all this would work. Susan Collins was actually reading it during the first impeachment and referenced it in a private meeting. And their prediction was that it would move as quick as Bush v. Gore because, and that was a matter of days, uh, that they ruled on, you know, the election and, and, and recounts in Florida, et cetera, who had won the presidency. 
And the reason being because when when a Senate is in the middle of an impeachment trial, they can't do anything. Basically, the entire Congress is frozen in an impeachment trial until they either all 100 senators agree to adjourn, which rarely happens because there's always somebody like Rand Paul who would object, uh, or they finish. So they're stuck in an impeachment trial. And the theory was, if you do this, the Supreme Court will rule in a matter of days because of the urgency of that. And again, just never tested because of the fear of the unknown and what would happen. One last question, and then my ultimate question. What was the Coons affidavit gambit? Mm -hmm. Oh, right. Basically, Coons just wanted to have them rush together the trial and bring it to a close. The managers are saying, we cannot let this piece of evidence, you know, about McCarthy and Trump go unused. And, but that requires basically either waving a CNN article in the air in front of the, the chamber or getting witness testimony. So Coons tries to come up with this middle ground saying, well, how about we just get Jamie Herrera Butler to, to, to sign an affidavit about what she said. I think initially there was discussion about having a response affidavit too from Rachel McCarthy, from McCarthy, yeah. right? Exactly. But then there was this whole back and forth of like, well, what if they just get into a he said, she said, and McCarthy basically says she's, she's lying. Now, Jamie Rara Butler is not the type of person to lie. Raskin actually calls his good friend Liz Cheney and says, can I trust this woman? He says, she's, yes, she has a really strong moral compass. She won't lie to you. Like you can believe what she says as they're trying to reach out to her. But, you know, the idea of doing a rush affidavit becomes, uh, that, that would, you know, balance both sides. You'd never be able to resolve the, that he said, she said of it all, and you would be left with nothing. And so there's all these negotiations are going on because Coons is running back and forth to the Republicans too, trying to like work out a deal between what Trump's lawyers who are asking for the moon will be willing to accept. Eventually they do come back to the idea of, you know, just being able to introduce the, the substance of what Herrera Butler said and that having been it, but she doesn't actually, nobody ends up having time to write affidavits, to do interviews, to do anything like this, because the trial, like I said, it's over by the early afternoon. So you write in the book that in the end, Raskin, despite vowing to do things differently, repeats the mistakes of the past. The second impeachment trial suffered from the absence of firsthand witnesses close to Trump. And the vote occurs and you get a few votes for conviction, seven. I think, seven Republicans, yeah. Seven Republicans vote for conviction. Then McConnell gives this speech on the floor that Trump was a terrible actor and all this was bad. The speech that he should have given in the beginning that might have brought people along. But I want to close by asking you two things. You write that the problem with this with both of these impeachments, the problem that this created was that impeachment, because of the way they were conducted, you write that impeachment now appears destined to become a political weapon instead of a fail-safe instrument to bring a president abusing his office to justice, that it essentially weakened and politicized the impeachment tool, Congress's nuclear weapon, if you will. And so as to weaken it for future use. So can you take us out of this interview by talking about what are the lessons that you think we should learn from your book on 
these topics? Well, impeachment's a power given to Congress without a rule book for how to wield it. You can impeach on treason, bribery, high crimes, misdemeanors, and there's no rules of the road for how you do it thereafter. So the precedent is what sets the standard. I think everybody pretty much agrees that Watergate was the gold standard in that it uh, involved painstaking investigation, slow coalition building, minority buy-in, due process rights, and you ended up with such an ironclad strong case at the end of it that the president actually ran away before they could do the final act of impeaching him and sending it to a trial. The Trump impeachments, as much as Trump was an anomaly of a president, the Trump impeachments count for half of the impeachments that have been completed to the fruition of an impeachment vote in American history and half of the impeachments that ever have been commenced against a president in modern history. And that means that those precedents now hold. And unfortunately, there is ample precedent now for doing impeachments and trials that do not involve subpoenas or running them down to court. That's undoing, unlike the way the Nixon Watergate years went, that do not involve putting witnesses forward, that do not involve finding the cut corners on due process rights, and that that you end up at the end, basically. The, the argument, look, our title, our subtitle, was about how Congress botched the impeachment of Donald Trump. You can see that as two ways, right? Did it end up in a conviction? No, it did not. Does that mean it was botched? Maybe. But if you think of impeachment as like a tool, let's say a knife, right? You want it to be sharp for each time you use it to cut something. And when you chip away at all these different things that I was listing out a second ago, you dull the knife. And so in the process of doing what they did for legitimately political expedient ends, the choices that they made during both of the impeachments have left you with a less robust impeachment tool and impeachment power. So the, the, the danger of that is that the next time something terrible happens where somebody's got to impeach or where somebody wants to impeach somebody who didn't do anything wrong, but because they just want to settle a political score, you've got a really dulled impeachment knife to use and impeachment starts to become not the constitutional failsafe it was. It starts to not work as well as it did because you did a whole ends justifying the means thing in both situations of both the Trump impeachments. And and we could see this happen pretty soon, too. I mean, this notion of like having a lower threshold for impeachment. We talk in the epilogue about how, you know, at the time this book went to print, Republicans were just about to flip the House. They were already talking about impeaching Biden over a whole host of things. And now, you know, there's this standard for not giving, you know, ironclad due process rights to a president or somebody who, who, you know, is in the cabinet. We are, you know, Republicans are talking about impeaching DHS Secretary Mayorkas right now. I mean, they could, they basically, there is now a precedent thanks to what Democrats did to not give any buy-in to the minority party or to write rules of the road that totally trample due process rights and just remove the guy because you want to do it. And so because of that, you know, you're going to see our sort of hypothesis and and what we've heard from a lot of scholars who focus on impeachment is that they think this is going to become a tool that is used all the time for a lot of future presidents because of political reasons, not the reasons the the founders actually put impeachment in the Constitution for. And it's just going to become weaker because of that. It's now a political tool instead of a national failsafe to, to protect against the tyrant. And I'll sum up your 
conclusion by reading something you wrote on the second to last page of the book. You write that the result of the two Trump impeachments is that the Constitution's ultimate check on a president is now in critical danger of being reduced to a mere political messaging tool. It's a great book, Unchecked, the Untold Story Behind Congress's Botched Impeachments of Donald Trump. I thank you both for writing it, and I thank you more for spending all this time with me on that said. Thank you very much. Thank it was you. fun. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.